Yeah, I think um, that's one thing that not that I want to stereotype all straight men because it's not true of, of many straight men, but I think the problem is, and certainly in Australian culture, it's never been seen as a good thing for men's talk. Mm. Mm. And I think, I mean, regardless of how you identify with your gender, humans are meant to talk to each other. That's why we developed language. Yeah. And it's so, I, I don't see why there is one particular group that is, is exempt from this because it's like, well, come on, you're still a human. Yeah. It's like, use your words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And another podcast episode, I don't know, because I've been cracking out so many quality episodes recently. Big shout out to everyone who sat down with me on the show. I really, really am so humbled by the stories that I get to hear. And I'm so privileged to do this podcast. Like, just the fact that I get to have conversations with such inspirational people, it's it's all I need. It's all I need. And I really hope that these conversations inspire you guys to take your power back, to take control of your lives, and to start doing the things you've always kind of dreamt of, but never thought were possible. So in today's podcast, I get to sit down with His Royal Highness Princess Mark of Adelaide uh, and we talk a little bit about acceptance, acceptance of self, of the opinions of others and acceptance more so and more broadly of reality. Uh, It's a fantastic conversation I got to have with Mark and Princess, you truly are an inspirational human being and thank you so much for sitting down and doing this podcast with me. Well, enough of me blabbing on and let's get into today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening and please don't forget to subscribe. Hey, how you doing? Um, yeah, not too bad. I sometimes feel it's a bit like Groundhog Day. Really? Yeah, that's an accurate comparison. What's is that? The movie is called Groundhog Day, right? Where he keeps yeah, yeah. So I think Bill Murray plays the character, and he wakes up every day, basically doing the same, or basically stuck in the same day. Yeah. For yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks or months, I can't remember. But it feels a bit like that sometimes. Yeah, and I think both of our Groundhog Days involve going to Tony's Cafe and having a latte <laughs> of some sorts. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think between you and me, we're probably keeping Tony's Cafe alive. (laughs) (laughs) And I go there in the afternoon, too. Yeah. Actually, I went there this morning, and it was so busy. The line was curling around the corner. I just decided to walk around the block, because all the cops were there getting coffees, because they found out it's the best coffee in South Bank. So they all rock up there. And then, because the cops are there, everyone's, like, super... Uh, socially right. distanced, you know, there's like two oh, yeah. <laughs> so They're in their own little personal hazmat bubbles because the police are there. Yeah, 100%. The cops are but, kind of just like, ah. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> They're doing their own Groundhog Day. Exactly. Well, I think um, people around here tend to do the right thing, I think, anyway, 100%. from what I've noticed. Yeah, 100%. Even, even like in the park the other day, there was some City of Melbourne um, park rangers mm. and they were um, walking around. I just finished doing body step. Mm. And they came over and I thought, oh, they're going to tell me off. They're like, oh, what's that workout? It looks really good. And I'm like, oh, it's body step. (laughs) They just start doing it with you. They just want to have a chat. (laughs) And um, and, um, so they were asking, oh, have you seen people like we've had complaints in the park of people not socially distancing? I'm like, well, I said, I haven't seen it, but then I I haven't been out here very much either. So who Mm, knows? mm, mm. So it probably wasn't very helpful at all. Yeah, right. I haven't really... But there's a... 
Sorry? I haven't really seen it in, in that little park of ours at all, really. I think everyone's been pretty good. Yeah, I think so, too. Mm. And then the next day I walked across, I was getting my coffee, and, and the same guy was kind of walking, like, doing the same patrols with a different person. He was kind of, like, a bit fangirling. It was hilarious. <laughs> maybe he's, maybe he's going to ask for your number. <laughs> I think that might be a very um, rapid de- a decline on that one. <laughs> I'll give him the first three digits and he can guess the rest. (laughs) It's 040, you guess the rest. (laughs) If you guess it correctly, it was meant to be. (laughs) And then you just got to go with it. Yeah, absolutely. And he'll probably just start dialing and dialing and dialing for weeks and then one day he'll get it right. Okay, well, in that situation, here's here's a bit of a curler for you. So if you're His Royal Highness Princess Mark of Adelaide, and you find yeah. a, another a, a partner, does that partner then become Her Royal Highness or is it still His Royal Highness Prince of? Um, oh, they, might, they just might be an untitled courtier. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> it, depends, it depends what their pedigree is and what their family background is. And <laughs> yeah, fair enough. High standards. Do they come from aristocracy already or <laughs> am I marrying a commoner? <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, um, let's kind of dive into it a bit. So... Today, okay, cool. today we're talking about accepting reality, ourselves oh, and, yes. and others. Um, but yep. b- before we get too deep into it, obviously we've been talking about His Royal Highness Princess Mark of Adelaide uh, being mm. yourself. So I'm really intrigued to hear the story of how uh, that identity, I guess, came to be and what you what you kind of see it as, what it was for I, you. I think, yeah, well, I think what originally... If you cast your mind back to 2004 in London, right. <laughs> well, whether you can or not, I don't know, but I can't. I was three years old. No, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> but in, <laughs> um, I used to work at London Bridge Hospital. It's where I met one of my best friends, Sarah, mm-hmm. and um, she's like a, a huge larger-than-life personality in herself. She's like a force of nature, this woman. Mm-hmm. And um, she, I don't know how she came up with it one day, and she just looked at me. We were both working in operating theatres at London Bridge, and she looked at me, and she's like, oh, you're such a princess. And I'm like, what? And it just felt right. And so she kept calling me princess. Then everyone else started calling me princess. And then over the years, it's just kind of morphed and grown. And, mm-hmm. and everyone seems to love the idea of, of having someone larger than life around the place. And so the princess turned into His Royal Highness Princess Mark of Adelaide. And because it probably it captures everyone's imagination that suspends reality for a little second and, mm. and they can buy into a little piece of glitter in everyday life, I think, as well. <clears throat> and I, whether they think I'm clinically insane or not, it's, it remains to be seen. But um, <laughs> but it, it, it seems <laughs> but like you're at a point now where you just you don't really care about those kind of negative opinions because uh, mm. that, that kind of identity has become who you are and it seems to be a, a pretty happy identity. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And on the way through with probably my identity, I discovered Karen Walker from Will and Grace. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you know Karen Walker from the series. I know the series Will is, and Grace, but I don't know Karen Walker. Yeah. Oh, Karen's um, Grace's assistant, and she's a pill-popping alcoholic billionaires um, <laughs> who married <laughs> married um, Stan Walker. But she just genuinely walks around in this world where she doesn't care about anyone mm. and she um, and she just has fun all the time. It doesn't matter what situation she's in. She doesn't take anything too seriously and she's always having fun. And I thought, well, oh, there's something in that. Mm-hmm. And 
Yes, so she, Karen Walker kind of did a, a little bit of heavy lifting when it comes to Princess as well. Yeah, right. right. But it just it helped shape my opinion, I guess, of, of how I want my life to be as well. And I kind of like the idea of always trying to have fun. And there's situations you can't always have fun. But I think um, if you can shape every day into having a little bit of fun and some days into having a lot of fun, mm. and um, then that makes up for the days where you can't have fun. Because, mm. I mean, you have to have days where you can't have fun. It's mm. just the way it is. Mm. 100%. Cool. Well, that's that's amazing that you've got to this point in your life and you're living as who you believe yourself to be and you're putting joy out to the mm. world and joy is coming back at you. But uh, I want to take kind of a step back because I think part of accepting ourselves and you accepted yourself as His Royal Highness Princess Mark of Adelaide. Um, but before <laughs> that, there would have been, surely there would have been some suffering that you had to go through or some sort of deep understanding of yourself so if you don't mind do you want to share kind of your mm. path and then maybe um how you think other people can do the same yeah well i think um even growing up i was never i was never accepted into a group like i never had a tribe mm. because i was just viewed as weird mm. it, all the way through high school and bearing in mind we're talking about high school of the late 80s early 90s um, I was heavily into music because that was a way I could express myself. Mm. Um, and I played piano and I sang and all those kind of things. So that's how I, I kind of protected myself at high school because high school wasn't very nice to me. Mm. Um, and it kind of shaped, um, I guess, the fact that I didn't fit in. And, and I guess that kind of, I didn't understand at the time that maybe other people just feared about like sticking out themselves if they associated with me and all those kind of things. But, um, I think probably I've never really been part of a tribe. I've never really fit in. So I had to create my own identity so that I had a way of expressing myself in the world. But also like, when you're part of a tribe, there's a whole lot of norms that come along with it and there's a whole lot of structure that gives you place to kind of either find yourself or or find a way of re relating to the world and all the rest of it. And I never had that because I was kind of a bit of a loner. Um, not that I chose to be a loner, I just was. Um, so I think probably on the way through, and that extends to the gay community as well, I was never really accepted by the gay community because living in Adelaide at that time as well, the gay community wasn't really that developed. I mean, we had one one club called the Mars Bar. Mm. And um, and I, I believe me, I gave it a, a good hard go at the Mars Bar. I kind of was, I think, for a while I was there every Saturday and Friday and Saturday night with my friend Julie for years, but yeah. we kept the place going when we left Adelaide at close. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think, like, there was not really a community that would let me in there either. And then I moved to London and I kind of, I guess that's where I started to really find more of, a niche where I wasn't so much if weird, if that makes sense, because there was London is such a huge melting pot of people um, that you could walk down the street with your pants on your head and people would be like, oh, you know, I've seen that before. Mm. It's nothing new. Yeah. So I was like people kind of because they are probably more worldly and more exposed to things that are different and because it's a massive city, people didn't view me as an oddity anymore. Mm. So that way it gave me, I guess, a little bit of freedom to start um, start exploring like who I was and how I could build my own self esteem and be being okay with the way that I am, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. There's um, I don't know if, because I, I love Tina Arena, absolutely love her music. Her singing is amazing, um, and she's got a song called "Now I Can Dance," mm -hmm. and um, 
it summarizes that kind of feeling. It's like now I can dance, clouds have all disappeared and the freedom I hold so dear because nobody knows me here. And it was like, that's exactly what it was. It was a clean slate when nobody knew me. And so that way it was like hitting the reset button Mm. and I could suddenly start seeing who I was on this massive international stage. And, and yeah, it helped me, I suppose, start to find who I was Mm. because I didn't really have that tribe anywhere. And I had my little kind of crew in London that we used to always go out with. And I suppose they ended up becoming like my London family as well. And then I created a life for myself in London. So when I came back to Australia, I brought all those experiences with me. And I think Australia had changed in the time that I was away as well. So then starting again here, I suppose, was just easier because I knew who I was and I knew how I related to the world. And and because I had such a, a great experience in the world, it kind of led me to this path. And I wouldn't say it was the path of suffering or anything like that. It was just a path of going, okay, well, that's not working. Maybe this is working. And then to a certain extent, making it up as I went along. Mm. So I can't, I can't say that there's been suffering in, in my journey, which mm. um, I don't know if that's a choice or that's just the way it is. But um, I suppose to, there was people saying awful things and trying to do mean things and be kind of crappy along the way. But I guess I just thought, well, oh, well, that's, if that's what they want to say, that's fine. I never really listened to them. Mm. Mm. And I think that's a big choice that people can make. Mm. but you don't have to listen to someone that's telling you you're awful or you're horrible all the things that you hate about yourself you don't have to listen to them Mm, and that was a big thing that i discovered yeah true a a few questions come to mind now after hearing that um i guess the first one the first two i want to ask is so london was kind of this melting pot and this more cultured place where people were more Mm. accepting of people who are different i guess first of all making that move away from adelaide was that scary and then the second question would be, do you think that when you did return to Australia, that's why you chose a place like Melbourne? Because it is more of a melting pot and more of a place where there's not that kind of fear of people who are different? Um, well, I think it probably was minorly terrifying at the time to leave Australia and go to, to London because I, I lived in Adelaide. I was from Adelaide and everyone in Adelaide, not everyone, but at the time, People were saying, oh, you can't leave, you can't go. And, and um, I remember my cousin trying to talk me out of going to London and saying, oh, you know, if you go to London, you'll be killed. It's too busy. You just stay in Adelaide. It's safe here. And everyone was, like, really harping about the fact that it's safe in Adelaide. And I thought, well, that's the very thing I'm trying to escape. <laughs> and they didn't really understand. And, but the reason I moved to London is my friend Julie, who's still, she lives in Melbourne now. She's a, we first started together working at Flinders Medical Centre in operating theatres in 1996. Mm. And um, we've been friends ever since. And um, she said, oh, I'm moving to London in 99. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And she said, why don't you come? I'm like, well, I was looking for something to do at Millennium. And so at the typical with most decisions in my life, I just tend to go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And it's not really any agonizing decision-making process that involved in a lot of things. Um, so I decided, okay, well, here's my plan. I'm going to go to London for Millennium for three months and then I'm going to move to Sydney. I thought that's a good plan because I knew I didn't want to stay in Adelaide any longer. Mm. And um, so I went to London for Millennium and uh, then three months turned into six months Um and then I met my partner at the time and we worked together for nearly nine years and he, um, he was from Finland. And wow. so, 
Um, yeah, so I just ended up staying in Europe. We came back to Australia for a while in 2003 mm. um, and then went back overseas again. Um, and then I stayed there and then came back to Australia in 2009 um, after we broke up because I thought once we broke up, I thought, I don't want to stay in England anymore because it's just too hard. Mm. Like the um, average average everyday person, sorry, um, doesn't really get ahead in London. Mm. Like it's um, wages are too low compared to the cost of living. Um, accommodation is phenomenally expensive. And I thought if I want to achieve anything financially in my life, I can't really stay here. Mm. And I kind of achieved everything I wanted. And, and don't get me wrong, it still feels like home, but it's kind of where is home? That's the confusing thing. And um, so in, I think in 2008, I was visiting um, Australia and I thought I'd stop into Melbourne. And I had no idea of what was going to come in the subsequent year after that. I just assumed that like my partner and I at the time we were engaged and I just assumed that we would spend our lives together. And and I was walking along South Bank just near where they have Arbury now, but that was like long before Arbury was there. Mm. And I remember walking along there and looking around at the skyline and just thinking, I want to live in this city. Cool. And I thought, this city's really cool. I want to live in this city. And I had no idea how it would manifest or even if there was a plan that it could manifest, but I just had this feeling. And so the universe basically threw an opportunity my way and it took me until 2010 before I actually moved to Melbourne. Yeah, right. And and that's when I kind of found, I guess, my second stride in a way as well. Mm. Like Because I've been doing Les Mills programs since I was um, – probably 17, 18, like body pump and step and things like that. And that was probably the big key to me being who I am and, and having confidence and and all the things that kind of make me me were probably because I discovered that very early in my life and it's been something that's carried me through all the way. So then the natural progression when I moved to, to Melbourne, I um, started with the gym, I started doing body pump and I met um, a guy that was an instructor and said, oh, he said, why don't you become a pump instructor? And I'm like, well, okay. So I became a pump instructor <laughs> because, again, like with the most decisions in my life, I just went, oh, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> if it feels right, though. Huh? I, think, I think there's a couple of things to, to unpack there. Um, so I, I think in terms of the, the fear that a lot of people face when they do feel like they're in a hole and they're not, like the people they're around aren't their people and the yeah. place that they're in isn't their place. For you, it sounds like just just listening to your yourself and the universe and going, yep, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to take the action. And, and you do it and it, it that fear kind of disappears once you take the action, right? But for someone there who's like yeah. kind of paralyzed by that fear and they're thinking like your friends in Adelaide were thinking like, stay here, it's safe. And the ego's telling them to seek comfort and... They kind of stay in that place of fear and don't embrace who they are um, because they're too afraid that people might think they're weird or that they're different. What do you say to someone like that? Um, I would say that inside all of us is that little compass that tells you what the right decision is. And then we cover that compass in fear and we cover that compass with other people's opinions and all those kind of things. But I would say to someone who is really, really afraid, number one, fear can be a good thing. If you're really afraid of something, it's probably worth doing. Mm -hmm. Number two, 
if the little compass inside of you or that little voice or whatever you like to call it says, I think you should do it. Or if you get that feeling like, I think this is the right thing to do. And then you turn around and listen to all the voices around you saying, no, no, no. You listen to that other kind of, I'd say, I think it's kind of sits on your shoulder there, that little kind of fearful thing going, oh, no, but you're not strong enough. Or I'm like, just don't listen to those things. What does it feel like in here? Mm-hmm. If it feels like the right thing to do, just do it. Because nine times out of ten, if you fall on your face and your hands in your pockets, there'll always be someone there that helps you up because that's human nature. Yeah, and true. you've just got to make sure that you um, have a fallback plan. Mm. And if you think, well, okay, I'm going to give this a go. This doesn't work. I'll do this. Or, or this, will, this will be fine. And my mentality, I think, um, when I left Australia was that, well, I'm going to London, but I can always come back. So there's very few situations in life where it's a one-way door. Mm. So I would say that to people. If you're just like listen to the that compass or the inner voice and mm. what does that say? And if that says stay here, then stay here. Or if it says go do something else, go do something else. Mm. And um, and sometimes those decisions that you make aren't always the right ones. But most times if you listen to that, from my experience, those decisions have been frightening and challenging and sometimes I've got into situations and gone, well, what have I done here? Or I don't know if I can do this. And um, But then the other part of me goes, oh, come on, like, that's it. But keep going. <laughs> I'm probably pretty stoical in that way. Yeah, um, and you learn the most in those situations too, right? Even at the time if it feels terrifying and you're like, fuck, I've made the wrong decision, like everything's, uh, it's the end of the world. Often in those mm. times is when you learn how strong you are inside and you actually learn the lessons you need for the next stage in your life. Oh, yeah. And they are um, they're lessons that see you through your entire life. Mm. And even even when I bought my apartment in South Bank, I had some people telling me it was a dreadful mistake and some people telling me, oh, you shouldn't do this, you know. And I'm like, well, I know I want to live there. I know this apartment suits me. And so I didn't listen to anyone. And... I had, there's been two times, I guess, in my life where people have come back to me and congratulated me for not listening to them. Mm. And, and um, <laughs> the first was um, years after um, moving to London, I was back on a visit. My cousin who tried to talk me out of going to London years earlier said to me, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you didn't listen to me. And she said, I wished I'd done what you did. Mm. And I was like, but she said, I just couldn't because I was too afraid. Mm. And I thought, wow. And, like, she's missed an opportunity just because she was too afraid. And and really, if she just decided to, like, not listen to that fear, and, like, don't get me wrong, it's terrifying. Mm. And then just go, okay, no, I'm afraid, but that's kind of a good thing because it's going to make me excel in the situation. And worst comes to worst, I can come back. And the second time that happened was when I bought this apartment and one of my best friends, who wasn't exactly what I call signed off on the deal, um, he said, after coming here and seeing the place and and everything, he's like, now I get it. He said, yeah, this is totally you. Mm. I'm like, yes. He said, ye of little faith. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's great what you said. And let me, let me make an assumption here. A lot of people uh, like yourself who decide to take action on things and not let fear hold them back, um, they tend to be people who are able to put themselves in the future me position, right? So like, all right, I'm nearing my death. 
and I look back and I think about this decision and I think of regret for not taking it. Whereas people mm. who aren't exposed to that kind of idea of you're going to die and that's way mm. scarier sitting there and realizing you didn't take action than actually just taking the action, mm. even though you're scared now. How do you mm. feel? So my question for you is because you have been exposed to a lot of death and a lot of suffering in your profession uh, in mm. nursing, do you think that that has um, enabled you to uh, take action when you're afraid? Do you think that's like kind of a motivator for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, you do see the futility of life sometimes and you do see um, like when someone comes into an operating theatre talking to you like I'm talking to you now and an hour later they're deceased mm. and it happens. Um, I wouldn't say it spurs me on to, I guess, live life more to the fullest because it's it's a weird psychological environment because that's what happened to them isn't my life, mm. if that makes sense. I'm a bystander in their life and at that point. Um, I can take lessons from that and things, and I have taken lessons from, from all those kind of things and also, more importantly, from talking to elderly patients as well and about um, like listening to their stories and, and all the things. And sometimes you get these really amazing like i had a 95 year old patient um and i think it's probably more the living that that inspire me more than the people that die mm-hmm. and um she was like 94 or 95 and she's like oh i said i'm still going to get older so she said, i'm not old yet That's <laughs> and, and she's just like had this amazing attitude of just resilience about her and and like she was having an operation and they're not pleasant things. They could be scary. And she was all like, oh, no, no, darling, I'll be all right. She said, you just make someone else's cup of tea first or you do this for someone else first. I'll be fine right here. And just this whole kind of notion of being um, self-reliant is still, and I see this in um, some of the strongest people I've ever come into contact with in um, my professional life as an, an anaesthetic and recovery nurse have been the people that take responsibility for themselves mm. And the ones that um, are very self-driven, mm. you, can, you can definitely see in it shapes everyone like their their whole experience based on how their mind is. And, and a lot of people that are self-reliant, self-driven, tend to get through those kind of experiences easier. Mm. So I guess it's probably they're the things that have kind of driven me. Um, I guess to, to succeed, I suppose, in a way. And yeah, right. if if this if this is success, who knows? Mm. It's your version uh, of success, right? And that's the important thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I have uh, a version of everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, um, I think some of the takeaways there, I guess, in terms of accepting self especially, and from what you're saying, from your experiences, you know, with elderly people who are positive and resilient is, one, taking responsibility of your own life, and then two, like, taking action and, actually doing something about it instead of relying on other people to do it for you. And that tends mm-hmm. to hold so many people back, right? And then, then they kind of start that negative cycle of, oh, I can't do it and I'm a failure. And then that turns into less acceptance of themselves. Oh, yeah. And then it, it just becomes a nightmare when you choose not to just take responsibility and do something about it. Mm. But then I think you've got to kind of one thing having like a, I guess a scientific background too is you've got to look at um, the decisions that you're making and kind of get rid of the subjectivity about it. 
and look at the objectivity of it. And um, and that's what we do a lot in, in operating theatres and certainly in medicine and nursing and everything. We tend to look at objective data. Mm-hmm. And um, and that can transcend to all aspects of life. It's like if you're buying a property, look at the objective data. Like, of course, listen to how you feel about the property, but also how does it stack, stack up um, economically in the environment, all those kind of things, and look at sale prices, all those kind of things. You can do that throughout the whole of your life. Mm-hmm. Like if, when I moved to London, I look at things objectively. Well, I'm going to work. I'm going to earn money. I'm going to find somewhere to live, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, my second plan, like I said, I can always come back to Australia. So you've got those objective things in place. So then, um, and I think they're far clearer to me when I'm making a decision and listening to subjective. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of people out there live what I call subjectively Mm -hmm. and they only listen to subjective data. And we're seeing it completely in in social media right now about all these sovereign citizens and all these people listening to subjectivity when in actual fact they're just clouding their mind to objectivity because it's too frightening or, or mm. they don't want to hear it or, or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah, I tend to kind of, I guess it's a risk management analysis maybe of my situations. And then if they do work, work out, if they don't work out, if they don't work out, you have a better story and you go, <laughs> And you pour yourself a gin and tonic. No, it didn't really go very well, did it? And <laughs> <laughs> a gin and tonic with Aldi gin, of course, right? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, oh, was I, so I was good? thinking about you and I poured my Negroni the other night and I was like, it actually, the Aldi gin takes a, a good few minutes to mellow into the drink. <laughs> <laughs> Basically saying until the taste of the disgusting Aldi gin disappears. <laughs> I don't know how it won a gold medal, but it's certainly I can taste the difference between a 78 degrees gin and an Aldi gin. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, you've learned something. You've learned something. See, you were correct, sir. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Hey, let's um, touch on what you just mentioned about objectivity and subjectivity, because I think that's super important in terms of not only accepting self, but accepting the reality of just the world and also accepting Mm. the opinions of others. And I think you nailed it when you started talking about what's happening in social media today and the news media in general. Um, mm. And it's so that that's part of the reason I do these conversations and have this podcast is because I was sitting with myself a while ago and thinking, God, I just, I'm just craving having conversations with people who have different opinions, but not coming from places of attacking each other, coming from places objectively, like you're mentioning, and just like trying to understand people and just trying to listen and accept the reality that, hold on, my opinions are based on my experiences and my environment, and they could be totally fucking wrong. <laughs> hmm. Oh, totally. I was wrong once and it didn't feel good. <laughs> I like that you said only once. <laughs> there might have been one and a half times. I don't know. <laughs> cool, but I guess... um. My question to you is, how does that ability to pull yourself away from um, the internal, the subjective thoughts on a topic, be objective? How, how does that affect um, how you accept the opinions of others? So let's maybe use the example you told me about when you were in, I think it was Sydney, and you had those guys yell at you from their tradie van, hmm. I, guess, oh, yeah. I guess slinging abuse about you being a gay man or coming out of your version of church. Let's talk about that story because I think that's a good example. Well, 
I mean, again, like what we touched on before, I think you don't have to listen to what people say to you mm. and you can reshape what people say to you objectively as well. So you can, um, when I hear someone saying something negative like that, I think, well, number one, I like me, I'm happy with me. So I'm not going to listen to somebody that tries to be derogatory to me because this version of me has taken nearly 46 years to put together and who are they in five seconds of, of assumption to say it's wrong? I mean, hello. <laughs> Yeah, they don't know you. This version of, and, and this version of me works pretty well, touch wood, it continues to work well. But I think when somebody does that, it's um, it's not anything to do with me because they don't know me from Adam. They don't know who I am, what I do. They're making assumptions based on what they see because they I haven't said anything to them, so they're making assumptions on what they see. Um, they may be incorrect assumptions. They might be correct assumptions, but... Um, whenever somebody does something like that, I just think, well, you're actually just telling me about you. Mm. So when someone screams um, something homophobic, a slur or whatever like that, I don't actually hear the words. Like I hear the words, but I don't take on board the words. All I hear is someone standing there going, I'm insecure. I don't like myself. <laughs> I may possibly be gay and I'm cute, so you want my number. <laughs> True that. True that. So it's like it's actually it's nothing to do with me. It's they're standing there and they they're too they're too I guess uninvolved to even realise what they're doing. Mm. They're standing there on a corner with a megaphone saying, "I don't like myself. I'm insecure. I'm gay. All those things." I'm like, okay, well, I, I'm pretty secure. I can have a conversation about this, which is when then the best way to I think deal with any situation to take any kind of aggression out of a situation is reflectively listen mm. and that's one big tool that as healthcare professionals um sometimes there's situations you can't um you can't correct because they're just awful and when somebody says um something like they're really sad about something or something's not gone right and and they say to you i'm really sad because of xyz and you just reflectively listen back to them that oh, that's awful that you feel sad because of X, Y, Z. Mm. And that because it's giving them validation that you understand what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and the same applies for that. So um, then I just think, well, okay, I'm going to reflectively listen. And um, then so they'll, they'll yell out something awful to me. And I'm like, oh, like I was minding my business, so you obviously want to talk to me. Let's talk. Mm. And then they'll go, huh, huh, and instant because that's not the um, not the response they're expecting. Mm. They're expecting you to get loud and obnoxious and yell abuse back at them because that's kind of what they want. They want a sparring match, yeah. and they want you to. They want to go like one or two words, and then you go like that and ignite inside, and then you start going yeah, back at them. And that's like, please, we're not in high school. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, have a bit of self control. And um, so I realised that they're actually just sounding off about themselves and then it completely diffuses that whole experience for them because it didn't play out the way that they wanted it to. Mm. And so suddenly you've kind of flipped the tables a bit and said, okay, well, you're telling me about you. Let's talk about you. Mm. Have you got unresolved feelings that you want to talk about? And then it kind of immediately they just want to run away. Yeah, right. <laughs> because you're, um, you've bypassed all the crap that they're throwing out and you're actually asking them something about themselves. They may have spent years mulling over in their mind. They might have, I don't know, feelings for the tradie that's sitting next to them and they're just kind of 
it, using me as a testing board to see what the other guy says and maybe the other guy says, oh, yeah, no, he's actually hot and then they have a love affair and they go off into the distance and get married and all the rest of it. <laughs> but that's my re- <laughs> that's, that's a lovely tradie wedding and I'd be standing there in a big hat and deal sunglasses. <laughs> yes. Being the one that brought them together. Yes. And they'd be <laughs> shouting shouting out to you at the at the speeches. Yeah, big shout-outs. I'm the linchpin that brought everything together. But I think um, if you look objectively at all those kind of things, it just helps for clarification of everything mm. in life. I think you have to look objectively at a lot of things, which is impossible for some people. Mm. 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 Yeah, I think that's, but, that's yeah. such a powerful tool when dealing with, um, with external noise, just like you said, if you actually... And it kind of... I don't know about you, but I've actually got to a point now where if people disagree with what I say or if people yell abuse unnecessarily, I kind of actually get like a little smile on my face. I'm like, okay, cool. This is a moment that I get to try and understand them, why they think the way they Mm -hmm. are. And maybe I can serve them in some way. Maybe I can help them understand that, okay, actually you do want a super cute tradie wedding and I am going to be standing there and you know what I mean? Like (laughs) like you can actually understand them and then maybe you can... They might not enjoy it. They might not like the fact that you cut through all their bullshit and identify what the problem mm-hmm. is. But maybe in a few years' time, they'll come back and thank you and be like, wow, like you really understood something about me that I was too afraid to acknowledge myself. Mm-hmm. So thanks for that. Yeah. And it's also the, um, the validation that you're on a good path yourself mm-hmm. because if you can stand back and go, okay, this isn't about me. Um, it means, A, you have a certain level of emotional maturity, I think, mm-hmm. um, and that you probably understand yourself more than the person you're dealing with does. And so I guess that kind of experience can validate that, yes, I'm on the right path, or no, I'm not on the right path, because it made me feel like this, and I don't like this prickly feeling, so what's going on with that? I need to unpack that a bit. But if you're feeling in those situations like nothing they're saying is worrying you, then it's probably a validation, too, that you're in a good place yourself so you can help somebody else mm-hmm. that's that's a good point you brought up about asking yourself questions um, I think so many people are, are super afraid or don't have the tools or the understanding that if you sit down with yourself and ask yourself why did I feel that way or how was today better than yesterday why am I happier today than I was yesterday those questions are like super powerful and I don't know about you but I journal every single day. Is that is that something you do or is that something you'd suggest to people who might be struggling to understand why um, they react? No, I don't journal because I'm a nurse. I can't read or write. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if, if journaling is a good tool, then use it, but it's not something that I really use sometimes. I, mean, I have used it in the past and it, it's fine, but I tend to... I don't know. I just tend to, if something flags up on my way through, I just tend to think about it or, um, or it'll come up at a moment where I can think about it or, or whatever. And, and then I just kind of process that way, I guess. Mm. I guess in sometimes a way, just, sorry, I guess in a way that's, uh, that's an ability you have to be still for a moment because in my opinion, a lot of people aren't able to take time to ask themselves, selves those questions because life in the in modern like 
in our modern world, everything is so fast that we never actually get the time or we don't allow ourselves the time to sit with a thought or an emotion and go, why do I feel this way? Mm. Do you think that's yeah. a talent that you have or a skill that you've kind of developed? I think that uh, the skill of just being able to stop is really important. Mm. And like even last night with my, my Negroni, even though I had to have, use the Aldi gin because I'm economizing. Um, <laughs> And by not impugning Aldi in any way, they've done a wonderful job of keeping gin um, at a reasonable flavour for a reasonable price. Um, if they want to send me free bottles, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but I was able, like, I was just sitting on the balcony, um, just watching sunset and stuff like that and parking my mind in neutral for a second and just seeing what pops up. Mm. And, and when you can park your mind in neutral, things do pop up. Mm. And you start to have thought processes of, I don't know, maybe a problem you're having yourself or you start thinking about certain people. For me, it's usually if I stop and, and park my um, my brain in neutral, I start to think about other people, my friends, family members and stuff like that. So then I was sitting there and one of my friends popped up in my mind and I thought I'd better send them a message. Mm. So I'd send them a little message and stuff like that. And, but conversely, if, if things pop up about me, I can just kind of sit there for a while and think, well, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? Or like give myself breathing space because I think when you have breathing space, you can um, you can pretty much accomplish accomplish many many things. Um, and so I'm lucky that I can just kind of stop for a second. And and for some people, journaling is that stopping for a second. For me, it's stopping mm. helps. And just putting my phone away or putting my phone down until I actually text someone that I want to say hello to. Um, and just yeah, just stopping and seeing what flags up. I think it's one of the most decadent luxuries in the world when you can stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it comes back to that, that idea of fear as well as some people are just, they've never done that in their lives because it is so fast paced now. And it's scary to stop for the first time. Like I was, I was pretty privileged because I grew up in New Zealand and I was into the outdoors. Like I would go away Mm -hmm. on three, four day solo surfing trips or go into the bush for three or four days. So for me, like being by myself, um, it was easy when I was younger, but I did go through a period of my life where everything was so fast and so busy and I knew something was missing and it was that ability to just sit with myself and let my brain be mm. still. Um, but for a lot of people, they've never done that. So it's, it's fucking terrifying, right? Yeah. And I suppose that's probably why we're seeing at the moment there's so many mental health problems um, associated with COVID and the uh, lockdowns that are happening and all the rest of it as well. And plus, the like the financial, um, the financial stress would be unbearable for some people. Mm. Um, but I think also the stopping is unbearable for some people, even if their finances and everything are in order and, and there's no real stress from that point of view. Mm. Even just the physicality of stopping or being stood down from work and stuff like that is enough to unseat some people because it's like it's messing with their role and how they see their role in society. Mm. And that's, this is very interesting. Like for me, I um, this whole thing is the first time I've actually stopped, like properly stopped in years mm. because I've always been very driven for success and success in my financial goals as well. So um, every day usually has a schedule that starts at 7, 7.30 in the morning and winds all the way through to 9 o'clock at night, and that's every day 
um, including Saturdays and Sundays because I teach fitness on Saturdays and Sundays. So because all of my work has been suspended for a while and I'm, I'm very lucky, touch wood, that um, I financially plan very well. Um, so when I, I guess I, I always, I'm a good saver. So that way I can ride through periods like this without having too much financial stress. Mm. Um, but that's just because... I'm just very prepared financially and that's the way I like to be because that's my safety net because mm. um, I think um, that gives me options. So that way I can be kind of more psychologically settled in those kind of things. And um, I think it's just an opportunity to stop. And like I said, it's been the, the first break I've had in years mm. and I've actually loved it. Mm. Like I, I haven't loved the whole process of what we're going through and all the rest of it because I've, it would be nice if we didn't have to do this. But um, the thing that gives me psychological comfort with this situation and a lot of others, um, like people that say, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda, I wish, I'm so sick and tired, all the rest of it, it doesn't really solve anything. Mm. And my answer to that is, well, if it was meant to be any different, it would be different. Mm. So mm. just deal. Yeah, This is the way it's meant to be. So, I mean... You just deal with the things the best that you can and also have faith that they will work out. Mm. I love that saying that um, everything will be all right in the end. And mm. if it's not all right, you're just not at the end yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I just have these little kind of mantras in my mind going, oh, things aren't all right yet, but I mustn't be at the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what, yeah, you're, what the, you're touching on there is acceptance of reality. Um, mm. And I think it's, it's a powerful ability to be able to sit back and go, okay, well, we're in a pandemic. This is what mm. it is. And what can yeah. I control? Like, what can I do about it? So I guess for people there out there who are terrified and they're, and I think that it's crazy, the kind of ideas that people create in their heads or the um, theories that people have in times that are, uh, odd like at the moment you see in social media all these crazy theories of this is a government mm. uh led pandemic and um this is china's be, yes. fault and this is america's fault and this is mm. the fault of the secret society and i think for a lot of people that's their way of dealing with reality um and not actually accepting it for okay like it is what it is it doesn't matter whose fault it is it just is what can i control mm. So how do you how do you control, um, like what do you choose to control in a situation like this when you accept reality? Um, I think the idea of control in this situation is futile. Mm. Like we don't have any control. <laughs> We're just kind of like <laughs> being a surfer. You know exactly what it's like. You can get yourself onto the wave, but where the wave takes you is like the wave's decision, not yours. Mm. And it might throw you off, or it might. Um, I don't know. I don't think you can control aspects of your life and how you relate to it. But then I think, well, I'm just going to like do what I do and just kind of like breathe out and just think, okay, well, with the restrictions that we have and with all the things that are going on, what can I do that makes my life happier? Mm. And for me, I pinched my friend Yoshi's bike. No, I didn't pinch his bike. <laughs> he um, graciously lent it to me after I suggested that he should do. Um, <laughs> 
the power of suggestion. And, and his partner was like, will you please get it out of our spare room? It's been sitting there for, for years. It's just... <laughs> so um, so I um, I ride my bike um, in the hour free time that we have to exercise outside. I'll jump on Yoshi's bike and um, do a little spin around the Docklands and stuff like that, and it reminds me of being a child. Mm. Um, so I can, can that's one thing I can do to make my current reality happier because this is kind of like being a kid again, like way back when I was living at mum and dad's place and I was eight years old and all we used to do after we'd finished our homework we didn't really have money to spend going out. We didn't have anything to do except really find our own fun and jump on the bikes and um, with the neighbour kids and my brothers and sister and we'd all jump on the bike and go for an explore around the neighbourhood and, and stuff like that. And I found myself yesterday doing exactly that. I was riding around um, Margaret Court Arena and there was a big puddle that was a huge, like, deep puddle so I was just riding backwards and forwards through it and, <laughs> and it gave me about uh, 20 minutes of, of enjoyment just from riding backwards and forwards through this puddle and it reminded me of being eight years old again because that's what we used to do and I think there's plenty of things that you can do in this situation to regain control and like but it's it's about where you're regaining control and so you can you can't control what's going on with this virus. You can't control the restrictions that the government is placing on us and trying to control the virus. What you can do is control the things that you do for your own happiness, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. So, Because otherwise, I mean, you, you beat yourself up for, like, years trying to work out how, like, how are we going to suppress this virus or how are we going to... It's just like, well, that's just pointless waste of energy. It will go away at some point and... So you just have to worry about keeping yourself psychologically happy at the same time. Yeah, I think you absolutely nailed it just then. And I think you touched on a really important point. And to bring it back to the metaphor of the surfer on the wave, sure, you can't control once you're on the wave. I mean, some people can because they're amazing surfers. Mm. But anyway, once you're on the wave, you're on the wave. But what you can control is how you balance on that wave, right? And so mm, that's like, totally. for me, that's like your circle of influence. So the way you choose to ride your bike and pretend to be a kid and how both of us, we both go to the cafe because I don't know about you, but for me, that's that's the limited social experience I get to have and I get to laugh with yeah. different people and it's kind of a little bit of routine that drinking my coffee mm. on the way back while I listen to cute voice messages from my girlfriend in Brazil gives me joy, oh. right? So that's like, yeah. that's your circle of influence. And I think the important thing that I would recommend people take away from this pandemic is to keep doing this into into life like don't stop focusing on what you can control and then dive into focusing on all the shit you can't control like climate change mm. is a great one for example or like the black lives matter protests for example like mm. there's a lot of people who go out there and they shout about things and they complain about things but then they don't actually take any action for themselves to change mm. right like yeah there's no point trying to change what you can't control just control no. yourself and then your your circle of influence grows, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then without yeah. knowing it, you're affecting change. Totally. And like and you touched on some very important points about the um, about certain protests and trying to change other people by yelling and screaming on the street. And I think um, the only person that you can change is yourself. And if you're a horribly racist person, then you need to unlearn that. And if every single person 
Because it's learned. It's not like we don't come out of our mother's wombs being racist and homophobic and mm. and transphobic and any other phobic you can think of. Mm. That's agree. taught. Mm. And so if every single person on the planet unlearned their hatred, could you imagine how good it would be? Yeah. It's yeah. like it's just and, – and I think that's the only thing you can do. And, and whilst I, I can understand that people through protests want to – raise profiles or certain things and it does get people thinking about it mm. um unless people accept the information and think well well i'm having negative thoughts to a, towards a certain person or so, a certain group of people and unless they unpack that for themselves they're not going to change and unless they want to change they're not going to change yeah. and this is um and hopefully through protests people have um have maybe i guess got people into that mode of thinking or some people in that mode of thinking about Okay, maybe I need to change. Maybe what I'm thinking isn't cool. Yeah, I would I would say that they that they have definitely. There's there's been a bit of a shift in the world, but I think the the mm. one that the one that bugs me is is people who will say one thing on social media, but then when they're put in a situation which is confronting. So, for example, if I'm across from someone who's been like blindingly racist or blindingly mm. um, homophobic, now like the Jacques that I am now, I'll say, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing yeah and i'll i'll be that person i didn't always used to be like that i used to kind of fear saying anything because you know that takes courage mm. it takes vulnerability to say i disagree with you like i think yeah i think racism is disgusting and i think um attacking someone for who they are and what they believe is yeah. disgusting but that takes courage and vulnerability right oh absolutely mm. but also too like if somebody is near me and says something wildly just, I guess, that not, I guess maybe offends my value system is probably the best way of, of saying it. Like, I think, well, I can tell them, I don't like what you're saying. Can you please keep your opinions to yourself? Mm. Because it's not appropriate. Yeah. And I tend to leave it at that. Like, I don't want to engage in them, engage with them about what their beliefs are because they're probably not going to want to change during my, the course of my conversation. Mm. And if they keep going with it, then yeah, I will engage. But by the same token, it's just like, come on, pull your head in. Mm, true. And yeah, so I, that's enough to just kind of spur them on. But I do like a bit of sport once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of back and back and forth. Oh yeah. Who doesn't like tennis? <laughs> it's the outfits. <laughs> Those 80s tennis outfits, though, right? The short shorts? Oh, oh yeah. I have a pair of short shorts under a very, very decently short skirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I keep dropping things. things. I have to pick them up. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah. On, the, on the topic of vulnerability, because I think it does take courage to be vulnerable, right? Um, so on the topic of vulnerability, how does being vulnerable and, I guess, different and embracing yourself for your differences and your own kind of brand of weirdness um mm -hmm. how does that empower you and the people around you um i think but i've got a firm belief that some people are created different for a particular reason um and i think um someone that actually really inspires me it's probably an unlikely person to that you think to inspire me is like someone like queen elizabeth ii she um she didn't get to choose who she is. She was born into this role for a particular reason, yet she's gone. She's had no choice. I don't know what her internal dialogue, we don't talk much at the moment. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you, 
Yeah, normally normally we WhatsApp it once a week, right? Uh, yeah, we watch Gogglebox together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she, um, whatever way of processing her role in life, um, she just executes that role because that's the role she was, I guess, born to play. Mm. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that in all of us. We're all born to play a certain role. And some of us in a grander kind of way than others. Um, but then I think accepting that role and thinking, okay, well, how does being me interpret with the rest of the world, if that makes sense, and how can I use me mm. to, um, I guess, bring a little bit of happiness or a little bit of inspiration or positivity to other people, I think kind of helps. But, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess, like, along with that, do you think being vulnerable empowers you more um i suppose so Mm. i um i don't really know not that i don't know what vulnerability is i know what it is but how it relates to me i don't know i guess i'm vulnerable i guess i'm not i tend not to think about it i think that's kind of (laughs) i tend to just be probably what i think that's kind of i think that's kind of like your superpower princess is you're like you don't understand that you're being vulnerable by showing the world um his his royal highness princess mark of adelaide um but you are and in doing so you're empowering other people to go well hold on like why am i trying to be this person that everyone wants me to be why don't i just be more like princesses and just be vulnerable and be courageous and accept who i am and i think for, for guys listening to this especially, and for women, but I think guys especially now, there's kind of this movement towards more men going, being vulnerable. Because there's this weird misconception with straight guys especially that, oh, you've got to be, you can't show vulnerability. You've got to be tough and you've got to be macho and you can't talk about your feelings because, you know, that's not what men do. And I think yeah. people like yourself, and if more men were able to, straight men in particular, were able to have conversations with people like yourself who are not afraid to be themselves. Yeah. I think more men would realize the power of being vulnerable and having yeah. a cry and showing their feelings. <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, I mean, unfortunately for a lot of straight men, they're just, I don't know, covered in shrouds and shrouds of indoctrination in how they should be and who they think they should be and all those kind of things. And if I come into those situations and I, I've, been in situations where like I've been probably the only gay guy at a very very straight barbecue or something like that and they're all standing around with beers and I've got martini glass in my hand or something because I just I I can't I just really can't and um and I come in there and accidentally just like they've got their their pains of kind of masculinity style of I like to like them as pains of glass they're all stacked up there and their indoctrination and I just come in there with a sledgehammer and just smash them go hi how are you yeah, right. And they kind of like it's really interesting how some of them relate because I don't understand any of the things they're talking about because they're talking some some guys talking code about football and sports and all those kind of thing. I don't understand any of those things because I'm not really a sports person. And um, so I have to try and find topics of conversation that are outside of what their norms are as well. And it's, mm. it's interesting when you see that once in a while you meet, meet a straight guy that just goes like, they kind of latch onto the idea that you've just proposed them accidentally, like not particularly saying, oh, here's an idea, but just of thinking outside the box or talking about something different or mm-hmm. going, oh, what did you do today? Mm-hmm. Instead of talking about their favourite 
football team, which is the predetermined, I guess, um, topics of conversation mm. for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's um, it's great then because in once in a while you see that someone that is becoming more vulnerable because they're letting a bit more of themselves out. Maybe that's what vulnerability is. I don't know. I just I, I tend to underthink things like that. Like one of my big mottos in life is I try and underthink everything. <laughs> that's a great way to be. Actually, that's a great way. Because I think be. thinking gets in the way. Yeah, it's it's like yeah. it's like Timon and Pumbaa off Lion King. Um, don't yeah. worry. No, not don't worry. What's it? Worry free. What's that song they sing? I can't remember. But if you break into song, I'll probably join. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could remember the song now. I guess it's. Uh... Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, anyway, it's at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you a message. <laughs> yeah, and message. I definitely will not get it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And yeah. I wake up in the morning going, "Huh? What was the thing about what?" <laughs> um. Yeah, I think. But I guess. I think you're touching on some on some great points there. I'll let you finish, actually. No, no, no. I was just thinking about vulnerability and thinking of, it's got me thinking about kind of what is vulnerability now. Mm. I guess I might have to do some reading. Sometimes yeah. even if I just um, refresh my idea of the, um, the dictionary version of like what the, the meaning of the word is, it kind of gives clarity to me as well. Mm. But as it, as it vulnerability applies to my life, I don't know. Yeah. I just try and not screw it up. I think it's a lot of what being vulnerable is, is just having the courage to be yourself and to talk your truths, you know. This is who mm. I am. This is this is the bad shit I've done or the negative things about me. You know what? Like, I learned from it and deal with it. Like, you want to mm. hate on that? Cool. There's the door. See you later. Yeah, and I think exactly. More, I think more and more guys, uh, like, I'm, I actually have conversations now and I've had conversations on this podcast with guys who I never would have thought would sit down and have discuss these deep topics and they walk mm. away from it going, man, like that was really, really good. Like I want to do this more. Like I want to have more conversations yeah. like this. I think, I think people crave it. They crave having these mm. real deep vulnerable conversations. Yeah. I think um, that's one thing that not that I want to stereotype all straight men because it's not true of, of many straight men, but I think the problem is, and certainly in Australian culture, it's never been seen as a good thing for men to talk. Mm, mm. And I think, I mean, regardless of how you identify with your gender, humans are meant to talk to each other. That's why we developed language. Yeah. And it's so, I, I don't see why there is one particular group that is, it is exempt from this because it's like, well, come on, you're still a human. Yeah. It's like, use your words. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's probably the experience you're having mm. is that, once you kind of open the floodgates, guys realize it's actually, you know, it's okay to talk. Mm. And why haven't I done this sooner? Mm. Mm. I mean, I can't stop talking. Yeah, 100%. I'm on the same boat. That's why I podcast. <laughs> oh, is that why? Yeah, yeah. I just love fucking conversation, to be honest. I just thought you'd engineered your entire media career up to this point just so you could have a conversation with me. I just thought it was self serving <laughs> for me. You know, I. I <laughs> Yeah, hit, hit the nail I on the just, head, princess. You've been stalking me for years. Finally, <laughs> reached the very pinnacle. <laughs> this is a career changer. It's all it's all downhill from here. I'm going to go into booze and yeah, drugs I, and everything else. And if I see you wearing sequins on the way across to get coffee in the morning, I'll just think, oh, that thing is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Hey, um, 
this was awesome, by the way. What a great conversation. And I think there's a lot of really big um, takeaways for people. Um, a lot of information to unpack oh, cool. in terms of acceptance of self, of others, and of reality. I think some of the key takeaways here, and correct me if I'm wrong, are um, in order to accept yourself, you kind of need to um, embrace the fear that's inside you, take action on it, take responsibility mm. for your own life. And then oh, another yeah. really important one you touched on was that idea of being objective and not subjective, not allowing mm. yourself to get caught up in other people's opinions of you, realizing that, well, actually, they're mm. probably saying this because they've got their own deep, dark demons inside. So this doesn't yeah. offend me. How can I help this person? Yeah. And I think it's also important not to get caught up with your own opinion of yourself either. Mm. Or your own or your own role and stuff like that like I know in in my family um, I tend to be like it, it sounds touching on the royal reference again the, the, the matriarch <laughs> I think we within our own families we all play a particular role mm. and um, whilst um, my sister and I probably share a lot like she comes from a similar similar clinical background I think like the, the best example I can say is um, only literally days after completing on this apartment and moving in, my dad had to have um, heart surgery in Adelaide. And, um, of course, straight away, I go into clinician mode. And because at that point, I figure that's what my family needs. And certainly that's what my dad needs. So I go into objective data mode. Okay, tell me what tests you've had done already, dad. And like, okay, yeah, well, this is what's going to happen. And there's no reason to believe that this won't go like this. And so the whole objective thing comes in. Mm. But then for only a few minutes, I didn't let anybody else see me be subjective about it because I don't think... Um, it's kind of like when you've got a suit of armor, when you see a little kind of crack in it, people don't believe it's strong enough anymore. Mm. And in that situation, I think for my family, I needed to be a strong person that just comes in, but okay, yep, no, everything's fine. This is going according to plan. But then also to I've got to remember that I'm also a human and um, that occasionally I need to be a little bit, a little bit subjective and let the emotions in. Mm. So when I had a quiet moment to myself, and it was in Qantas Club when I had my back turned because I'm fancy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I get them free with my credit card. Yes. And I take advantage of free things. Yes. Um, just for a few minutes, I allowed myself a few tears just to kind of feel the experience. And then I just package them away, put them away in the box. And, okay, I can be that strong person again. Mm. And I think that's important. It's like don't get caught up in the opinion of yourself and who you think that you are and, and even who you know that you are. And for a minute, just go, you know what, I need to step back from this and just go, oh, this is heavy. And then go, okay, no, I've had that minute. I can keep going. Yeah, that's powerful. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a powerful you way. You just to... have to. Yeah. And I'm sure Her Majesty does it as well. <laughs> the Queen we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, of course. She probably just sits down in her bureau and just goes, well, hmm. And then has a gin and Dubonnet. <laughs> and, and she's allowed to be human for a second. She probably screams at Philip for a minute and then do, off she goes. Do you think the Queen drinks LD gin? Um, if it was by appointment. <laughs> we haven't discussed it. <laughs> awesome she has her appointments. I have mine. I, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to start up a princess appointment, I think, just yet with the LD gin. <laughs> I would like if 78 Degrees are listening and they would like to um, set up an appointment with me, I think that would be wonderful because they're Adelaidean as am I. I'll tag them in the Instagram post. <laughs> <laughs> 
78 degrees sense sustenance, please. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Hey, I think that's a pretty good place to um, end it. Thanks so much for jumping on. Before My everything, before I, I cut you off the Zoom and we resume our regular uninterrupted broadcast of quarantine living, um, I've got this thing I do at oh, the end of every the... podcast called the four and one. So I think we'll do that and yeah. then I'll ask you for your details. So if anyone wants to get in contact with you and kind of say, hey, can you help me sort out yeah. this problem with acceptance? They can. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's start with Instagram's the, the best way. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll get that just to the end. Let's do this four and one real quick. So I'm going to ask you four questions and then you get to ask Yay. me one. Okay, cool. 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 Awesome. So first one is, and this is a deep one. A couple of these aren't so deep, but this one's pretty deep. What are your thoughts on the whole um, gender construct kind of uh, topic? Um. I think just let gender go off into the ethos. Just like, I don't know, like, you know, like a helium balloon, get all the, all the genders that everyone thinks and that they identify with and everything like that, pop them in a helium balloon, an environmentally friendly helium balloon, by the way, <laughs> and um, stand out somewhere, let them go and let them just float off into the distance. And that would be the best thing, I think, for gender. And that way, like I think um, there's so much around gender acceptance and all the rest of it. And I think why don't we just deconstruct this whole conversation and just say, you know what, you're a trans woman. Great, you're a woman. Or how do you feel that you identify? I identify like this. Great, then you identify with that. That's it. And just I think give power to people to decide who they want to be. But then once they've decided who they want to be, hey, cool, just, just keep going. But then also that changes too. So why don't we just kind of get rid of all the constraints mm. and just have this big kind of area where you can just be who you want to be. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. There's a, it's it's mm. like what you said before about I think a lot of these things people just overthink them because they seek out or they crave conflict. Mm. It's like... Man, if, if someone wants to be someone that, you know, that doesn't fit in your idea of a, a specific gender, who cares? That's, that's their yeah. choice. It doesn't affect you. Exactly. They just don't talk to that person. Talk to someone who likes you for you. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay, second question. This one is a little bit more uh, chill. Okay, so obviously a while ago, Kim Kardashian said that she would post a photo that would break the internet, but it didn't. In wow. your in your opinion, oh. what will finally break the internet? Hmm. I guess we're thinking about something that needs to be broken. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm hopeless when it comes to things like trying to predict what's going to break the internet and all the rest of it. And then when like this whole construct of breaking the internet, and then when somebody does release a photo or something does break the internet, I often think, oh, okay, oh, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I really have no clue. I think probably um, a billboard of me and Kim Kardashian, <laughs> like I want to be the new Sharon Streslecki. <laughs> awesome. Okay. That's internet breaking. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any one, one right answer for that. So we'll take that as the correct answer. <laughs> um, cool. And obviously, you, you're a singer as well, which is something we didn't really touch mm-hmm. on in this podcast. Um, when on stage... I do sing. Yes. And, and when on stage, who do you most relate to? Um, well, Princess, I suppose. Um, Princess is like a cabaret performer and it's kind of like my own kind of view of the world and reality, but also to kind of get very, when you're on stage a lot, you do get kind of very, I guess, well-versed in relating to the people in front of you and bouncing off them. So you've got your own language and dialogue for doing that. So I guess that's it. Hmm. I don't know. Cool, cool. And the last question for you. Okay, so this one is another funny one as well. So let's say um, you get pulled aside by the FBI or the CIA or some some giant intelligence organization. They say to you, Princess, you're the only one that can save the world. And in order to do that, you have to go on a date with either ScoMo, Scott Morrison... Or Boris Johnson? Oh. Which is your choice? Oh, Boris Johnson. <laughs> is it the hair? <laughs> is it the hair that does it? No, I mean, they're, they're, both, they're both unattractive. But I know that <laughs> Boris is probably up... <laughs> I know that Boris is probably up for a decent drink and we get along like a house on fire, I would imagine. <laughs> and I can't imagine myself sitting well with um, Scott Morrison's view on a, a lot of things. But I think that, like, at least... Boris Johnson's a good laugh, I suppose. He seems like a good laugh. <laughs> Sweet, God. Boris Johnson it is. Oh, he's what a man. <laughs> cool. And now you get one question for me. Oh, I hadn't given it much thought. Let me think. A question, a question. Mm, does it have to be like a really in-depth kind of question? or it just No, can it, be, can, it can be whatever um, you want to ask. Hmm. Oh my goodness, this is really putting me on the spot. I have I need to think about a good question. I feel like I need to have a good question. Um <laughs> Okay, um Um what's what do you hope to achieve from your podcasts? Mm. That's a good question and I'd kind of already asked myself this a couple of times, so the answer comes quite easy to me. I've already achieved what I want to achieve, and I achieve it every single day that I do the podcast. Because when I, when I sat down to start doing these, the first thing was I wanted to have more conversations that challenged me. And the second thing was I wanted to give people roots and wings, is the way I put it. Is When people listen to this, I want them to listen to it and understand that there's problems in the world and that there's hardship, but also that they have the total power to do something about it and to take command of their own lives. So I achieve that every single day. And if in the future, which I have no doubt it will, it'll become bigger and it'll affect change for more people, which is just fantastic. It's like more and more icing going on top of the cake. So. I'm pumped already and I'll be more pumped as more icing goes on top because I fucking love icing, so. <laughs> and as I always say, as I always say if you've got a, a bloody good cake to start with, what's a bit more icing? Exactly, exactly <laughs> that. And, and got a cracker of a cake already. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's it. Hey, um, and, it, and of course a gin off the site. It's a gin cake, actually. Well, really? Definitely not Aldi gender. <laughs> Poor Aldi. Yeah. Now you're right, Aldi. We love you. <laughs> hey, um, so let's 
I think that's a good place to wrap up, Princess. But before cool. before we kind of end the podcast, where can people get in contact with you if they if they wanted to just send you a message and say, hey, thanks, or ask you some questions that they're unsure about? Who's the best place? Um, uh, Instagram. So um, my Insta handle is the Princess Melbourne. I'm at the Princess Melbourne. So, but a space between each word because there's an underscore between each word. Okay, cool. But, um, um, I'm the Princess Melbourne. Awesome. So put an underscore between each word and you'll find me on Instagram. Awesome. And, and yeah, shoot me messages. Yeah. If people want to um, like what they see and want to propose, I'm definitely open for that as well. <laughs> but not Scott Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson, you get a tick of approval. <laughs> oh, yeah. He can give it a, a yeah, absolutely. Why not? <laughs> I think his girlfriend might have something to say about that. <laughs> 